Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm a professor at Spurgeon College and author in residence at Midwestern, and I'm glad you're with us today because we have singer-songwriter, author, and all-around spiritual auteur, Andrew Peterson, as our guest. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been. I uh, uh, saw you a couple months ago in Atlanta. Um, we 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 reminisced, did we not, on uh, '80s and '90s Christian metal? I think. <laughs> was, it, was it Extreme that we talked about? We talked about Extreme. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, extreme actually shows up in my book. Uh, oh, for I don't real? That far, but yeah, I actually uh, kind of like uh, praise Three Sides to Every Story as like one of the records that led me to the whole be the whole blame of God thing. Man. Uh, and I, as soon as I saw it was you, I was talking to you today. I was like, "Oh, good, we're going to get to talk hair metal. That's going to be great." <laughs> well, we could talk. Stri- I was wearing a striper T-shirt. I think that's what like that's set right. off the conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which was good. Well, hey, um, yeah, thanks for coming on. You you, you have a new book out from uh, B and H called "Adorning the Dark: Thoughts on Community, Calling, and the Mystery of Making." But this isn't your first book, right? You're a novelist. Is this your right. first work of nonfiction? It is, yeah. Yeah. What was it like shifting those gears? Uh, it was scarier. Like, <laughs> I, like I, I was a lot more anxious with this. I mean, you know, anytime you do something, it's it's a little scary. You want people to like it. And, yeah. Uh, you hope, but I felt a little more exposed with this one. Um, I'd never tried it before, like long nonfiction, and uh, and it's pretty like intimate. Like I got, yeah. I got it, the whole thing started as a journal, and so. You know, it's, it, I, I just remember thinking, if people don't like this book, then it's going to be harder to not take it personally, you know? Yes. Yeah. Did you feel like, you know, in, in some sense, it's, it's like a peek behind the curtain to the process of what most people see the finished product of generally. Mm-hmm. And now you're kind of letting people in behind. Um, I, I imagine that can be a little scary or a little, uh, you're making yourself somewhat vulnerable. But is there also a feeling of, is this too... Uh, self-indulgent does does anyone you know like how the sausage is made <laughs> yeah, oh man it's, it's so true there's a lot of that in the book where i was having to like remind the reader i'm not telling you this so that you'll feel sorry for me i'm telling you this because i don't want you to feel alone yeah like, like I, that's truly my goal it was like uh you know the fact that it started as a journal um i was in a i was making a, an album and um like five years ago and uh and and I was writing, I started journaling the, about what was going on inside me during the process, just as a way to kind of get the juices flowing. I was like, I don't know what to write about. So I'll just write about what it's like to not know what to write about. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, that it worked, it got me going and I ended up finishing the record. And, uh, and then a few years later I looked back at it and I was like, I, I couldn't remember having read a book on creativity that, that got as frank about the voices, the inner voices and, uh, is that and so I was like maybe maybe this would be helpful. Yeah, so. I think we're in a special place right now. Um, I mean, maybe you can call it in the Christian marketplace, I, I suppose. But just culturally speaking, where I think, especially younger generation, we're more open to that conversation. Um, I'm trying to recall; it's probably 20 years ago, maybe more than that. But you know, at least that, or almost around that time, Charlie Peacock wrote a book called "New Way to Be Human." Mm-hmm. Um, which sort of touched on some of these things. And I don't know anyone else who read that book. <laughs> For those of us who are interested in storytelling and, um, you know, sort of the, you know, Lewisian approach to uh, Christian art, if you can call it that, you know, Christian writing, um, it, you know, 
I found it very helpful and very uh, profound. And it wasn't just about artistry, but it just seemed to kind of go over like a lead balloon. And yet I, I think generationally it was kind of out of its out of its time. But it seems like now we're a little more open to these sorts of conversations. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that Charlie and his thinking kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the good good changes that are happening in the church mm. and art and that kind of thing. Like, you know, even I've been doing music for I guess my first concerts at churches were 25 years ago. Yeah. And and I uh you know, it was like um the sound systems were always bad, you know. I remember <laughs> we would take 5 hours to 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 rewire the speaker, you know, and uh, the speaker system because they, they had it hooked up wrong. And and, uh, and it was like it, it, there was a clunkiness to it that I just don't encounter much anymore. And part of that is because, you know, my career is in a different place than it was. But but there really does seem to be like a, a better appreciation for excellence and things like that. Yeah. And the aesthetic of things like we can like that you're generally speaking, I think. Oh, well, for example, there's a there's a guy, S.D. Smith, who wrote a book. Uh, series called the green ember and yeah. he put he started a uh a conference called what was it called i can't remember the name of it right now off the top of my head anyway but it was it was for storytelling and families and so i went to speak at this thing and i looked around and i saw a, a church jammed with families and they were talking about everything from c.s lewis to i think there was i i talked a little bit about harry potter like there was this all of it underneath the umbrella of the gospel yeah and i just looked around i was like this would have been revolutionary when i was 12 years old to, to go <laughs> right. you know what i mean to be a kid yep. who loved fantasy novels and music and all this kind of stuff and for somebody to say hey guess what the gospel matters here too you know and so i think the church has just gotten better at it over the years and charlie i'm sure had a lot to do with it yeah, and so I want to stay in kind of that vein, the 20 years or so ago, right? So in 2000, uh, I was living in Nashville. Um, actually lived in Nashville from 97, 2009, but it was around 2000, maybe shortly thereafter. It was a really difficult period of life for me, emotionally, spiritually. And my wife worked for Lifeway at the time. She worked for Lifeway for quite a while, actually. And she was always handed things, you know, given, you know, books and albums and everything. And Someone gave her, which she in turn gave to me, um, your record carried along, which I don't know if that was your first album or not. Label record, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember being really helped and ministered to by that in that particular period because not just of what you were saying substantially, but the uniqueness of it, 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 it just kind of gave a voice of encouragement and there was a different sensibility than what I was perceiving in CCM. And, and, you know, certainly I don't want to bag on CCM or anything like that, but it struck me, it reminded me of Rich Mullins, who I was, you know, hugely helped by in my high school years um, and even junior high years. And I know you've gotten this comparison um, probably over the last 20 years of your career as well. What's different about what Rich did? What, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you, I mean, I assume you consider him an influence, but um how do you bring a, a unique sensibility to songwriting that you think uh, makes it different? Not, you know, better, not asking you to contrast or be proud, but what, yeah. What artistic sensibility do you bring to songwriting? Um, I think so. So the, you know, if you, you've probably experienced this, like if somebody goes, I don't get rich Mullins, help me understand why rich Mullins is off. <laughs> yeah. Then it, it takes a minute, right? You kind of got to go, you got to listen through the kind of eighties, you know, pop sounds of his early stuff. But what I always gravitate to are his more like 
these these beautiful like uh, he, he he was capable of amazing poetry. Yes, but he didn't always do that, right? He, sometimes he was writing "Our God is an Awesome God," and yeah, and, but even that song in its original. You know what I mean? Like there was something unique and clever about that before it became the homogenized worship song that every youth group did. Sure, but but you have to admit he could cheese out. Sure, like, like there's <laughs> definite clunkers on on those those albums. And I, you know, and he's allowed. It's totally fine. It's not like I'm not bashing. But man, when he would write things like uh, "The Moon Moved Past Nebraska and Spilled Laughter on Them Cold Dakota Hills," yes. that's Rich Mullins. That's the part that I love. And so I think by the time I came up, he had kind of like we were talking about Charlie, he had laid the groundwork for the fact that you could be a Christian and write with like high poetry and this like really earth, also this earthy James Taylor type sensibility, yeah. uh, use a hammer dulcimer. And so, so for me and my friends that were influenced by him, that's the part of what he did that we loved the most. And that's the part that we emulated. So I think that that you know i'm not saying i never cheesed out i've made some mistakes on my records you know there've been things that i i would change if i could go back but in general there was like one slice of who rich was that i really latched onto and i was like those are the kind of songs that i want to write yeah um and so i think that's part of it um and uh you know by the time i was coming up in in music the ccm thing the the tidal wave of worship music had kind of taken over and and so if you were a narrative singer, like confessional singer songwriter, you weren't going to have much chance getting on the radio back then. And, and so we just had to kind of find our own way. We, yeah. we weren't as much a part of the CCM world as, as he was, which is ironic because he wasn't, he was just like the outlier of outliers in that world, but he still, you know, opened for Amy Grant and, you know, did, <laughs> you know, did the CCM thing. Cause what else was he going to do? Yeah. I I I wonder. I think that's why I appreciated him so much too, because even you know most of the music that I listened to at that time, if it was quote unquote Christian music, was not stuff you heard on the radio anyway. And you did hear him on the radio, but there was just you know something different about him. I think he's proof, and I think you're proof that you can maintain a Christian message without sacrificing artistry, um, or vice versa. What? How do you do that? How, I mean, because the the assumption is for something to to have a resonance, to have quality or excellence, you, you kind of have to, you know, sand off the, the rough edges of, of the gospel message or biblical truth or whatever it is. And yet I think your proof you, that that's not true, that you can actually have this, uh, you can have credibility, you can have substance, depth, poetic sensibility, and not sacrifice at all any, any sense of biblical truth. So, I mean, is that something that you're even thinking of consciously or is it just sort of like uh, definitely thinking of it? Uh, and that was one of the things that I loved about Rich's music was that there was a um, I've, I talk about this in the book a little bit. But the I thought so much about like, what was it about 19 year old Andrew that just just latched onto those songs? What was it about them that that allowed them to like smuggle the light of Jesus into my heart in the way that they did? And. And so what I, my hunt, my theory is that it was a combination of honesty, truth, and beauty. It was, it was that he was, he really knew the Bible. And like, I don't know if you remember, but in his liner notes, he always had Bible verses underneath the title of the song. Yeah. He cross-referenced, you know, right. which was so cool to me that like he cared enough. He wanted the people at home to know these aren't just my ideas, you know, that this stuff came from somewhere. And so there was this like 
authority almost of truth that came with it because you know I, I can't tell you how many times I would I would be reading the Bible in college and happen upon a, a Rich Mullins lyric that I didn't realize was scripture. Right. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, you know, like Paul is ripping off Rich Mullins. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, there was that, but then there was also this beauty. There was this high level of uh, artistry in some of those songs that was like, okay, he was really not messing around as a poet. But then the other part that really got me was his, his honesty. Like he was, there was, there was nothing terribly pious about him. He was like, uh, you know, it wasn't unusual in one of his songs to, for him to talk about Jesus and Wichita. Or like one of the, the titles of his album, one of his albums was Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth. And I think that sums up part of what I love about him is that there was no Gnostic divide there. Yeah. He was like, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Um, the, you know, um, the skies proclaim your handiwork, all that kind of stuff. So he, he helped me kind of like see that there was not some like category of my life that belonged to Jesus, that the whole thing belonged to him. And that it was therefore okay to write about all of it. And so if you like... You know, in my theory, it's like if you if you take away the honesty part and you you have just truth and beauty, you've got great hymns, right? But in a lot of the hymns, you don't really get a sense of who the writer was. You don't get a sense of their brokenness. Um, they're written for like congregation singing. Or if you remove the if you remove the beauty and all you have is honesty and truth, you've got um, a lot of bad Christian music. You've got people who are really honest and we're singing about the Bible, but there's no craft. Or if you've got craft and honesty, but no scripture, you've got Paul Simon and James Taylor. You've got, you know, this beautiful, honest work that is also crafted really well, but there's no scripture hiding in it really intentionally. And, uh, and so if, so as a Christian who wanted to, to like, like, I really actually believe this stuff, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know how to get escape the fact that I believe that Jesus is this person who loves me. And that's a story I want to tell. And so to try in my music to, to, you know, and those are the Himalayas. I, I'm not saying I've ever climbed them, but that's what you're looking at when you're making art. You, you go, well, if I can, I want to try to write a song that's as good as Rich Mullins one day. And I've, I've got a ways to go. But like, but if you can't, if I can be as honest as possible about my own life and the, the kind of the, the nitty gritty part of like where the rubber meets the road here. Um, and that means writing about my marriage. It means writing about my kids and my own sin. Uh, and I can like learn to love scripture enough to where scripture is an organic part of what it is that I'm writing about. And I hold myself thanks to my community and my own snobbishness to, you know, some kind of a standard, right? Like I'm, I'm not saying I'm a great songwriter, but I would love to be one one day, you know? So, so to try (laughs) like not settle and just actually try to write. So that's, that's part of what I, I I feel like the, the, it's like the trifecta of what makes good Christian art. And, and again, sorry if I'm blabbing too much, but the, the, uh, when I first moved to Nashville, there was this, you know, most people my age in their twenties, we were having a hard time articulating what it was we were trying to do. And then I read Madeline Langle's book, Walking on Water, which yeah. was like a revelation. It's a great book. Um, and she talks about how, you know, if it's bad art, then it's not Christian art. If it's good art, then it is Christian art, no matter who made it. And I get what she's trying to say there, but that makes it sound like there's something less artistic about being explicitly Christian. Right. And I'm like, well, no, I, I kind of can't help it. I don't mean to write about Jesus. It just happens. It's uh, just how it started me. Yeah. And so, does that make sense? It does. So, so so when I think about 
like to say that like being explicit or overt makes it less artistic is to say that like the Notre Dame cathedral is not artistic. (laughs) There's a massive agenda at play there or like Handel's Messiah, like uh, overt scripture and like this high, beautiful art. So you don't have to sacrifice um, art if you have an agenda. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're staring down the exhaust of 25 years of propaganda masquerading as art, um, and that's where the skittishness comes from. I think to take um, – I teach a writing class here at, at Midwestern, and trying to uh, coach students to to take the risk uh, to trust that uh, the Lord has you know, truly taken up residence <laughs> in their heart, has shaped their heart and mind that their values are going to be um, informing the art. So, yeah, you come with a message. You, you, you come with something in particular you want to say. But I think of Lewis also, um, you know, talking about how he didn't begin the, you know, the conception of Narnia was not, uh, I want to write an allegory, you know, a Christian allegory or, or something, you know, metaphorical. It, it was an image. It was a fawn carrying packages under a lamppost or something like that. And and I just think to trust the the latency of our Christianity, um, and and in a way put art you know put art first um, that you know you can really trust the things that you believe and that you think and feel shaped by the Holy Spirit to to out in in yeah. the midst of that you know that's how that's how it was with the the wing feather saga like I was determined to not you know there were there are some obvious like Christian themes yeah. That, that that I knew would be in the book, but I also was like, my main goal here is to try to tell the best story I can to, I want to keep a 12 year old kid reading. You know what I mean? Mm. I want to, I want to appeal to the 12 year old kid that I was. And so, and and at the same time, fully trusted that because of the indwelling Holy spirit, that if I can, uh, like, like hold loosely to my agenda and allow him to do what he wants through this story, then it will be better than I can do. That's good. Hey, I want to ask you a couple questions about the book, but first let's take a break and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Andrew Peterson about uh, his new book. I want to get more specific about his book, Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community Calling and the Mystery of Making. There's a little piece in the book where you refer to uh, speaking to friends who are um, you know, pursuing a music career, their waiting tables, all that sort of thing, and they got their demo tape in their back pocket. Um, and the advice that you, you seek to give them is the advice that uh, you, you wish you could go back 20 years and give yourself. Which is basically what? What would you say to an artist? <laughs> uh, oh man, it, the the way that chapter ends is sail by the stars, not the flotsam. Mm. So it's like 
seek first his kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And so there's like, there's this part of like, I get that question sometimes, um, you know, how, how do I make a career? Right. And the truth is like what worked for me probably wouldn't work for you. Um, all I know looking back is that I had, um, I had a little bit of like youthful, uh, audacity. I was (laughs) foolish, you know, and I was just like, um, moved to Nashville with no money in the bank with a wife who was incredibly trusting. And we just started doing it. You know what I mean? Right. With, with this kind of recklessness, you know, that, uh, that I don't, it, it like when I look back, most of the stuff that I really thought was going to pay off didn't. And it was the moments of mercy that, that did. It was these moments where completely undeserved, uh, situations where somebody invited me to do something where the call came out of the blue. It was all the, all the flesh stuff didn't work and the spirit stuff did, you know? And so, uh, anyway, I, I don't know exactly. I know that, um, Oh, I was going to say something. I, something jogged my memory. I, I just know that like, I would have told my younger self to, uh, to, to not be a, to a, not be so hard on myself. You know, I could beat myself up a lot over the years. And also, to just kind of remember that all all you have when you start out in any kind of creative project um, or uh, it's, it's kind of the same thing that Abraham had when he set out on his journey. It, it was this massive willingness to fail coupled, coupled with um, and a, the mountain of evidence that God has never left or forsaken you. Mm-hmm. And so if you kind of step out into your project going, I might completely screw this up, but even if I screw it up, God will make good of my screw up and it's going to be okay. He's never, he's never left me alone. Yeah. It seems like the drop, the, the shadow, um, the specter of platform and uh, how we vision success or a a career, quote unquote career, uh, sometimes hinders or or compromises um, the, I don't know, the, integrity of, uh, of artistry. And so I get the question a lot and I'm sure you do as well. Um, not so much how, how to help in terms of writing advice for writing, but advice for getting published advice for, you know, finally arriving and, you know, and certainly, you know, we could share words like that, but I just remember, you know, in the beginning, you know, certainly I wanted to be published and there were things that, you know, steps that I was taking to, 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 to try to build a career. And yet, I never stopped writing when, when I went 10 years without getting published, I didn't think, well, I guess this is, you, you can't turn it off. Uh, you, know, I, you know, there's something to, uh, to those who are, are really artists versus those who they want to have written or, or something like that, where you, you, you're going to write no matter what, you, you, you yeah. know, you can't turn it off. Which kind of comes back to calling. It's like, if God has called you yeah. to do this thing, then you don't need a publisher's permission to do it. You don't need a label's permission to do it. You just go do it. And, um, and you fail a lot and you, 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 you know, I was dropped from a label. I was dropped from a publishing deal. I like, you know, I know what it feels like to, to be like, oh man, there was a conference room and I was the subject of the meeting and they all decided I wasn't worth their trouble. That's right. (laughs) That is a painful feeling, right? You want, you know, you want the work to be good, but in every case, uh, like I can look back and see the, the way that like I didn't. Well, like if I had gotten what I wanted, I would have been miserable. Mm. You know, I, I've, I'm kind of riffing here, but like the, I was thinking about how 
you know, I've, I've never been like a, a radio darling. I've never had like big hits. I never had a big thing that like paid off that, you know, made a million bucks and was able to just take a break, you know? So been, have been, uh, self-employed for my whole career, which is an amazing gift, but it's also a lot of stress. It's like, yeah. uh, not knowing where the <coughs> mortgage payment is going to come from when you've got three kids is a scary feeling. Um, but like to, to look back and realize that, um, that what that like if I had had some big hit early on in my career and it made a lot of money, there's no question in my mind that I would not have have been as productive mm. because honestly, a lot of the, the 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 cycle of every other year having an album come out, me starting to write the books, a lot of it was just like God redeeming my fear and my ambition. So there was this combination of me being terrified that if I didn't work hard, my family wouldn't be taken care of. And I wanted to make a name for myself. Both of those things are giant dead ends. Yeah. But, uh, but God used those things and a lot of failure in between those things to to not only shape my heart into something more Christ-like, but also to put out a lot of work that I wouldn't have otherwise. You know what I mean? He's he took those those broken motivations and the end product was well. There's still a record out there. There's I'm still going to use you even if you're a knucklehead. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? So it, it's just, it, it's kind of nice, uh, to know. So here, one more quick anecdote. When I was, um, I dropping my oldest son off at college three years ago, he's a junior now. Um, but I cried like a baby the night before you we were helping him pack up his room. I couldn't stop crying. And the, the, my, he was like, Papa, what's going on? And I was like, I just feel like a failure. I'm like, I feel like there are so many nights that I could have been hanging out with you. And I was watching some stupid Netflix show. <laughs> I missed my chance, you know. My this wonderful man that was growing up in my house, and I and he was like, "Papa, like it's okay, <laughs> you know, like like." But you do, you know, you can't help it as a father to have all these regrets, all these feelings of failure. And so the next day, we were at at the college, dropping him off and crying, and all the other parents are crying. We're all and uh, and. Every time I talked to somebody, I was like, man, I just have so much regret. They would be like, you're a good dad. You're a good dad. And my wife was like, Andrew, you're a good dad. You're a good dad. And finally, we bumped into Brown Bannister, you yeah. know, who yeah. produced all Amy Grant stuff and a bunch of other wonderful stuff. And he's a professor at Lipscomb now. And he saw me. He was like, hey, Andrew, how's it going? And I was like, man, I just i am so, so full of regret. And Brown laughed and he said, oh, I remember feeling that same way. And can I just tell you, it has been so fun over the years to see the way that God has redeemed my screw ups. Mm. And that was the first, he was the first person that did, that didn't let me off the hook. He didn't say, you're not, you're, you're a good dad. You didn't mess up. He said, well, of course you messed up. Like, <laughs> like what, what more do you expect? <laughs> right. like if, but, but the part of the joy of being a believer is, is seeing all the ways the Lord threads his mercy through our lives, you know, yeah. and that's gospel. That's, that's a much better story than, Oh, you're okay. You're fine. Yeah. And so looking back at my career, it's the same thing. It's like, I, it's not like I did a bunch of things, right? Um, it's that God redeemed all my screw ups. You know? D did you drop your son off at Lipscomb? Yeah. <laughs> so he's what, like 30 minutes away? <laughs> yeah. I know. So there are all these other parents that were like from California right. that were like, where are you from? I was like, you know, Antioch right down the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just picked up on that. We we just dropped our oldest off uh, for her freshman year uh, in Pennsylvania, so 15 hours from us, and it was a little rough, I have to say. So, uh, but the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Um, you have a chapter in the book about serving your audience, 
Um, and of, you know, obviously in the subtitle, you, you, you're talking about community. What's the role of of, of community for uh, for artistry? Um, obviously, we don't just think of ourselves as these sort of rogue agents, and you do have a singular vision, or this, uh, you have a voice and gifts. But what's the role of community in either shaping that or guiding that? Sure. Uh, well, the the there's a couple ways to answer the question. The, what, the first thing that popped in my head was uh, Michael Card, who is a mentor of mine and a wonderful Bible teacher, and uh, he he told me one time, "Your community defines your calling." And um, and I thought a lot about that, and I think there's two sides to that coin. That that if you want to know what your calling is, you look at the community that God has put you in, and you ask yourself, "How can I use my gifting to love the people around me mm. best?" And um, not the masses, not the people on tour necessarily. It's, it's like a sub uh, point, but like your immediate family, the people you go to church with, the people. How do you use your gifting well for that? And so it, it means that as a songwriter, I go, well, I'm I, I'm going to write a song for my neighbor, and I'm not going to shy away from uh, making it specifically about my neighbor for the sake of radio play. Um, and in fact, the converse is true. Inverse? I don't know the difference between the two. Uh, <laughs> you're a professor, so I'm like I'm like careful with my words. Um, yeah. I'm but barely the, a professor. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but one of the things, like a little truth in like the songwriting craft that I discovered years ago, was that that the the more specific you can be about your 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 own story, uh, the great the broader the possibility of the reach. You know, like in the song "Dancing in the Minefields," uh, which had some radio play. Like the opening line is, I was 19, you were 21, the year we got engaged. And I've had so many people come up to me after shows and be like, that's exactly our story. I was I was 19 when I got married, too. And I'm like, I always want to say, well, I actually just said I got engaged when I was 19. Um, or they'll say, like, I was 22 and she was 23, just like you. So it's kind of like people are so used to like superimposing their own story on what they're hearing. Mm. Details don't. Don't line up as much as they think they do, but there's something about having a concrete detail that gets their attention. And so, uh, so that's one side of it. Your community defines your calling. The other side of that is that sometimes I think your community can see your calling better than you can. Like if you're a part of a healthy Christian community, those people are going to be able to. It's like you're standing too close to the painting to know what it is, and so you mm. need these people around you to to call out what it is that you're doing. You may not even realize you're doing. Um, and for example. Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> this is kind of a sad story, but, but like 15 years ago, my wife and I were, we host a lot at our house and we got so tired of hosting. And one day we realized that it had been like years since anybody had had us over for dinner and we were feeling kind of pathetic about it. We yeah. were feeling, we're like, why doesn't anybody, we were like, I'm done hosting. I'm tired of washing all these dishes. Let's just not invite anybody over and just see how long it takes for somebody to invite us over, which is stupid, but we did it. <laughs> and about a year went by and and we didn't have anybody over. They didn't have us over. And finally, we started getting calls from people saying, what's going on, you guys? When are you hosting another party? Like we, we miss everybody so much. <laughs> and we realized that that, well, there's a lot of factors, but not everybody has a house that's good for hosting. Not everybody has a spiritual gift of hospitality right. in that way. And we were like, oh, well, maybe it's not that people don't like us. Maybe it's that this is the role we play in our community. That's right. Weird. So our community helped us see this is what God has kind of prepared us to do. So I think that's it is like as an artist or a pastor or whatever it is, it doesn't matter if it's the arts. It's like you just you just try your best to, to look at the world through the lens of 
God put me here for a reason, and I have a there, somehow there's a seat at the table for me to bless the people around me. Yeah, that's um, a good word. What do you want readers to come away from reading Adorning the Dark with? What's the major takeaway that you hope that they're blessed by? Um, I I think the the thing I most want is for people to see themselves as image bearing creative people inherently, and uh, and that I would hope that the book gives them courage to to speak light into the darkness, um, whatever their calling is. And one of my soapboxes is this whole creatives language where people have started saying I'm a creative and I'm like, <laughs> that is not helpful. That's not helpful. The, uh, everybody is creative. There is no special creative okay. class. Um, there, you could say I'm an artist. That's true. But, but to say I am a creative implies that mathematicians aren't creative and homemakers aren't creative. It implies that my wife is not creative because she's not an artist. And, uh, if you walked into our home, I tell this story all the time, but you would always find a candle burning. Um, It's always, she has this compulsion to make it beautiful. Um, She cannot help making my life and our children's lives and our community's lives more beautiful by what I would argue is her creativity. And so, so that's one of my big things is to go to kind of level the playing field and say, everyone uh, in the church, in your church has a creative gift to give. And, um, if we can change, like what, what would it do to uh, a stay at home parent to, to look at every, look at their lives through the lens of creativity, not just keeping their head above water, but how can I actually uh, use this image of Godness in me to paint the best picture of what the new creation is going to be one day that I can imagine wow. and, and begin living in that now. Yeah, that's beautiful. Hey, um, we've got just a little bit of time left. I want to ask you about, you have a new album that came out in October. Behold the Lamb of God. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, well, 20 years ago, I started a tour called Behold the Lamb of God, which was a – it's like a, a song cycle about the incarnation. And so um, starts starts in the Old Testament, and there's – you know, a, a, we could have started earlier, but we start – my first song was called Pass Over Us, and it's about Moses – the Passover and followed by a song about King David. Then it goes to Isaiah and it kind of lays the groundwork for the coming of a Messiah. And, um, and it was the, the point was to kind of show the centrality of Christ to the, to all of scripture, um, the old Testament and the new Testament. And so we, that was a revelation to me when I was in Bible college, I, I just didn't, that wasn't something people talked about. Growing right. up. And I was like, man, if I grew up in the church and I didn't know this, then there must be a lot of other people who don't either. So let's. So I wrote this body of songs that told that story, and it's not necessarily a Christmas album as much as it. A friend of mine says it's an album about the need for and the coming of a savior, savior, which happens to be the Christmas story. Right. And so, uh, so yeah, it's this year's the twentieth year of our tour, and um, it's grown a fair bit over the years, and uh, has become a tradition for a lot of people and. And so we decided for the 20th anniversary to go into the studio and re-record the whole thing and um, invite some new voices into the room and, and had a like two-day party in the studio. And uh, and we're going out on the road to celebrate the two decades of this thing. That's awesome. Man, well, I, I, I wish you well with that. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Andrew Peterson. His new book from B&H is called Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community, Calling, 
and The Mystery of Making. You can pick it up wherever good books are sold, online or in brick-and-mortar stores. If you're listening to the podcast, as always, we do thank you. Uh, we ask that you would recommend it to your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes, Spotify, and so on and so forth. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.